but out of a tremendous need in our own lives to declare to you together who you are, to be reoriented around the truths of Scripture that teach us that life is not about us, that we are not the master of our own destinies, that the world doesn't revolve around our sense of desire, that ultimately all things are from you and are to be lived for you. And one phrase that really just leaped off the screens to me as we were singing that song is that you are our treasure, Lord. We are bombarded with messages every day that are vying for our worship, that are crying for that place of being on the throne of our hearts where we will yield our allegiance towards. And so we know there's opportunity to make other things, other people, stuff, our treasure, and yet you are the only thing worthy of that place. And so this morning together we say that we have sinned, that we have made other things our treasure. And this morning as we sing that song, we declare back to you that you're the only thing that's worth and worthy of worship. We pray as other churches around the valley are gathered right now doing the same thing, that there would be arising from this valley, great praise of you. And that that would, Lord, usher in a a real season this fall of you working mightily, not just here, but in other places. Where people would come to know you, where sins would be turned from, where marriages would be restored, and where you would be seen as the treasure that you are. We do pray for us, Lord, in particular here at Church on Mill as we start a new series today and we consider what it means to be the church. We pray that you would speak to us in fresh ways, ways that challenge us and encourages us to live differently. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are uh, new with us, my name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege this morning to... Uh, start a new uh, new sermon series we're calling Shared. If you don't have a Bible, there are a whole bunch at the back at the coffee bar on the left. We'd invite you to get up and grab one of those and feel free to take it if you don't have one. And if you would, turn with me to Exodus chapter 6. We're going to be in two main places this morning. That will be one of them. So Exodus 6, Genesis, Exodus, second book in the Bible, not hard to find. Turn with me there and we will get uh, started together. This morning, just a question for you as we get rolling. What makes you, you? When you think about your sense, your personal sense of identity, where does that come from? What keeps you grounded? What makes you, you? Is it who sits with you at school lunch? Is it where you work? Is it what degree you're seeking? Is it how much you weigh or who you're dating or what hobbies you enjoy? Is it your greatest achievement or your most painful failure? If you have kids, is it how well they behave because you didn't? Is it your net worth? Is it who you find yourself being friends with? What makes you, you? We all have an answer to that and... That is what day in and day out our sense of identity is all wound up in. How you answer that question will have a dramatic impact 
upon all the rest of us. So that's not an isolated question that's just about you. Ultimately, it's about what makes us, us. As a church family, who are we? Are we a weekly encouragement service? Are we a spiritual club that you join and pay your dues? Are we a subset of a denomination? Are we where we meet or how many people show up or how our buildings look? What makes us, us? Well, every fall here at Church on Mill, we try to spend a couple of weeks re-answering those questions again because those are things we can have a tendency to forget. And in this new series of talks, we're going to be exploring what God says about us as a church family. What we're going to find is that God's plan has always been to create a people for himself. And that people would then display to the whole world what a great God he is. The way we have expressed that here as a church family is like this. We exist to glorify God through lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's do that together, could we? We exist to glorify God through lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what would it be like for a group of people to actually take that on and and own that as their sense of identity? How would your answer to the question, who are you, be different if that was your answer? How would life look differently? If we go off that definition, church then is not a building we go to. It's not a club we affiliate with. It's not even a denomination we join. It's certainly not a political party we align ourselves with. And thank God it's not our buildings. At the very core, what is church? Well, what we'll say today is simply this. Church is God's people. Now, I spent a lot of years in school to get that. Church is God's people. But it's amazing how complicated we can make church. At the end of the day, that is simply what church is. It's people. It's God's people who have been bought by Jesus and collected by Jesus in order to live out the truths of who Jesus is. So please hear me, even though that's simple. We're not first defined by what we do. That's not our primary identity. Yes, we do things, but our primary identity is what's already been done for us. Christ died and rose again. Do you believe that? Christ died and rose again. And we, in His mercy those of us who know God as Lord and Savior, have been placed into the family of God. If you read through your Bible and you come to that big C, that's what that's talking about, church. All believers everywhere have been put together in the family of God. And then that is expressed or lived out in local churches, little c. Church is not first what goes on in a building. It's who we are. It's an identity, not an activity. Maybe you found that it's possible to go to a church building and totally miss on how to be the church. Now, because we're God's people, we live shared lives. Our life together is to be so full of joy and love and care that people are attracted to that shared life. We're to show the beauty of the Savior by the degree and quality of our commitment to each other. So let me say it again. God's plan has always been to create a people for himself who would display his glory before the world. 
So if we could break that down today, I'd like to tell you how God's given us the opportunity to be people with a new father and a new family and a new future. I pledged that I would never do that, give alliterations, but it came to me in the shower this morning, so I had to. We're a new, we have a new father, a new family, and a new future. Let's walk through those things together. We have a new father. Look at Exodus 6, verse 7. Here's what God told the Israelites while they were slaves in Egypt. Verse 7 of chapter 6. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you will know that I am the Lord your God, who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we have a new father. That's good news. We live in an age where it's far more common for your father to be absent than present. Many of us in the room may not even know who our biological father is. And if we do, and if he is around, many times he's nothing like he should be. Instead, he drinks too much, he yells a lot, he keeps to himself, and life is about his hobbies. It's incredibly common to not have a father who has nurtured relationship with you. The good news is, Christian, that God is a better father. There's a better dad. There's a dad who loves, who gives, who sacrifices. There's a God who reaches out, not pushes away. There's a God who doesn't lash out in anger, but nurtures and disciplines out of love and care and tenderness. This father saw his people in the Old Testament in slavery, and he took the initiative to get them out. And he did it in dramatic ways. And that same father is still releasing people from burdens. He's a father that forgives. He's a father that allows us to start fresh. He's a father that's never sinfully angry. We have the joy of relating to God as our perfectly, perfect heavenly father and to do that together. Isn't that great news? There is the dad you've always wanted. And yes, in a sense, it's difficult because you can't see him. But that's one of the reasons why God has given us each other, so that through the way we care for and love and reach out to each other, we can see something of what God is like. That's what church is supposed to be. The people of God gathering together, telling each other, you have the perfect heavenly Father. It sounds simple, doesn't it? But how badly we need it. We need to be reminded again and again and again. And church, because we are God's people with a new father, we also have a new family. Now, why don't you take a second and turn to the person on your left and tell him or her the craziest thing one of your relatives did at the last family gathering. All right? Go. Don't pretend you don't have one. All right, now, I, I know you could go on forever with your stories, um, but here's the point. We, 
We all have biologically weird families, correct? Guess what? Look around you. You also have a biologically and spiritually weird church family. That's how it works. So everybody's normal until you get to know them, right? Church, as God's people who have a new father, we're now placed into a new family. And for for us as Christians, delivery from slavery out of Egypt isn't the most important family event. When, when you think about your biological family, there's, there's moments that you look back on that are seminal moments. They're seminal events. They're things that really mark the family for years and years and years and years to come. Sometimes those are rosy and happy things. Other times those are really destructive and painful things. For, for the Israelites, so the, the people in the Old Testament, the first half of your Bible, the exodus out of Egypt was the high point. It was the moment in which God said, you are my people and I'm going to act on your behalf. For us as Christians in the New Testament, of course, we don't look back primarily to that event. We look back at the event of Jesus coming and dying and rising again. What the... Egyptian event pointed forward to was that far more important event. And so all through the New Testament, we read of Jesus's life and death and resurrection that mark us as God's people. Maybe you'll turn to me to 1 Peter 2, uh, a book that we have covered often here, but it says it so clearly and so wonderfully, communicating to us what it means to be part of the new people of God, the new family of God. So 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10, we'll just read two verses and see that we've been set free not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin. So 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says it this way, but you, that's collective, plural, you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So one of the ways this, this family, what church is, is described, is that we're a chosen race. In the Old Testament, God's people were the Jews. They were an ethnic race, a people related together by blood. Peter takes that idea and he says, now in the New Testament, the people of God are are not the people related by blood. Where are they? Actually, they are. They're the people related by the blood of Christ. Christ shed his blood in order that we could not be saved individuals, but so that we could be a saved people, a people gathered together in his name to show the world what it could be like to live with God as our king. That's the opportunity that we have. Now look at this picture with me, if you would. This looks like something taken from a third world country in the middle of political turmoil, doesn't it? But where was that? That was right here in our own country. You've probably seen the images that were filling the news the last two weeks. It's amazing to me that in the year 2014, 
the news is still full of racial and ethnic discord. In case you've been hiding under a rock the last two weeks, an 18-year-old named Michael Brown was shot six times by police. Now, I wasn't there. You weren't there. So we don't know exactly what happened. But he was black and the officers were white. And now this whole city is coming apart. The Missouri National Guard was called in. Schools were closed. A curfew was established. It looked like something out of the 50s or 60s, doesn't it? That's right here in our own nation. It's heartbreaking. Racial tension spilled over into bloodshed. That's not merely the stuff that happens 50, 60 years ago or in some other place. It still happens right here. Or far worse than that, on the other side of the planet right now, we have the conflict in Iraq and Syria where ISIS is inflicting racial hatred. Rape, beheading, kidnapping, mass murder. It's horrific, isn't it? I hope that the, the consistency of those images that we see doesn't numb us to the horror that they represent. Friends, the church is designed by God to show the utter foolishness of racial, racial hatred and the sheer wonder of love, of love that comes when people recognize I've been bought with the blood of Christ and I've been put into a new family by the blood of Christ. So look around you. What you see in this room is incredibly unusual, incredibly unusual. Even for an eclectic city like Tempe, the diversity that we have as a church family is uncommon. So the older person near you, don't elbow them, the the Taiwanese grad student, the Anglo middle-aged woman, the young Native American boy, if we look around us at the world, what we find exists here doesn't make sense. What you see here is a miracle. And it's such a joy to be a part of, isn't it? There is tangible evidence sitting right next to you of the truthfulness of the gospel. That God can take people together who ought never to get along and they can become one in Christ. Brothers and sisters, family. People who care about each other. Not merely sit in the same room once a week. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, we would say welcome to you. Thank you for coming. How do you explain what you see in this room? When you watch the news and you see the difference that exists in how these people treat each other, what do you do with that? How do you make sense of that? Well, what we would say is we're downright weird. That God is forming in us a new people, a new race, a new family. This one isn't based on pedigree. It's not based on how much is in your bank account or how attractive you are or how much education you have. It's not even based on mutual interest in particular activities. It's based in one thing. That one thing is the truth that Jesus came and died and rose again. And we all have a mutual need for Him. And we've had a mutual experience of being encountered by Him. And therefore, we live not for ourselves but for each other so that we can make much of God, not ourselves. We're based on God's choice of us, and that's the most important thing to us. So being a new family, we can relate to each other as brothers and sisters. We can help each other. We can care. We can encourage. 
Peter called that something that seems really strange. He called us a royal priesthood. So turn to the person next to you and tell, you, tell them that you are a royal priesthood. Now that's downright strange, isn't it? Even in church, even in church, that's weird. But let me see if I can explain it to you. In the Old Testament, priests were people who mediated a relationship between a sinful people and a holy God. That's who the priests were. Now, you didn't get to be a priest by going and taking a career test and deciding to become a priest. That's not the way it worked out. You were born into a tribe of people who were priests. So it was not a decision you made. It was a family that you were born into. You just followed suit with what your father did. Priests prayed for people. They offered sacrifices for them. They cared for them. They taught them. Now in the New Testament, that blows up from one tribe to all the people who follow God. So in other words, because we've experienced the mercy of God through Jesus dying on the cross... We now have priestly duties towards one another as members of God's family. Let me just give one example of that, prayer. I, I, <laughs> I heard this week on the news a new survey that had been done that said 35% of Americans believe in UFOs. So if you're one of those, then you're one of the, the 35%. Then the next stat said that 25% of Americans now go to church on a weekly basis. So there's far more of us that believe in aliens than apparently believe in Jesus. That's telling, isn't it? It's freaking scary too. But most Americans, this study went on to say pray. So the vast majority pray. It was in the 90s. So if 25% go to church regularly and 35% believe in aliens, maybe we're praying to aliens. I'm not sure. Prayer. What is prayer? Well, in the Old Testament, there's a story of a, of a priest named Samuel. And he told the people of God to serve God with all their hearts. He told them, like we sung about, to make God their supreme treasure. And he mentioned prayer. Here's what he said, 1 Samuel chapter 12. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they're empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Watch this, what he says about prayer. Moreover, as for me... Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. He said, there is a world telling you to make everything else your treasure. But don't do it. Don't live for anything that's empty. Live for God. And you're going to need prayer in order that you can actually live that way. Far be it from me that I should sin by not praying for you. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if we as a church family say that about each other. Do we say, far be it from me to sin against God by not praying for you? It's so simple. As I worked on this the last several weeks, honestly, I felt kind of silly bringing some of this to you because 
Unless you're here in church for the very first time in your entire life, these are things you've heard. And yet, do we actually do them? Do we build the rhythms of our life in such a way that our day has time set aside to pray for each other? Do we actually do that? If Christ is not your treasure, maybe it's because a brother or sister isn't praying for you. That's how interrelated God says we are. One of my favorite times in the entire week is when my gospel community gets together to simply pray for each other. We share a meal and then we sit down and we pray. Nothing flashy. The stupid dog is usually barking. Kids are screaming. My daughter's bird is squawking. Somebody's getting up and going back and forth to the bathroom. But right there in the middle of that chaos, we're being priests to each other. We're sharing needs and then simply praying. I fear that we've expected something to happen apart from prayer, and it won't. Prayer is one of the main ways we get on our knees before God and ask God to work. It's one of the main ways we fulfill this priestly duty of being brothers and sisters to one another. Just get with each other and pray. As our sense of identity shifts from ourselves to being God's people, then our behavior begins to change, and one of those things is prayer. If you look on in 1 Peter 4, you'll see some of the other things that begin to happen. Chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. Above all else, keep loving each other earnestly. For love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to each other without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. Whoever speaks, let, it, let him speak with the oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves with the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Because we're God's people, we have a new father and we have a new family. We share a lot in common. And over the next four to five weeks, we're going to spend time together talking about what is it that we share. And here's what we'll cover. We're going to cover that we have a shared identity, which is what we're talking about today, that we're God's people. Now, that's simple. But what would your life look like, Christian, if when someone asked you, who are you, that you didn't first go to your education or your background in money, or your sexual history, or who you're with, or if you have kids or not, or how attractive you are, what kind of car you drive or clothes you wear, or where you're from. But the very first thing that jumps to your mind is that I'm a brother or sister in Christ. I'm part of the family of God. That that's the very most important thing to me. That not even family, biological family comes first, that God comes first and God's people. That sounds strange, but that's the way it should be, that we have a shared identity, that we're God's people. Next week, we'll talk about the fact that we have a shared authority, that we're people who have chosen to live under God's word, that ultimately we don't believe we know best. We believe that God knows best and we're willing to submit to him.
And therefore, as people with shared authority, we have a shared mission that we're here to make disciples, that we're here to tell people how great it is to live with God as your king. And then finally, that we have a shared motive, that we live for the glory of God. And we're going to define church like that, that we're God's people under God's word, making disciples for the glory of God. Now, what does that mean practically? Well, I'd like to spend the remaining couple of minutes that we have together just trying to give you some examples of what this might look like. And I'm encouraged to say that this year, as we circle back around to talking about what does it mean to be the church, I'm really encouraged to say that we're seeing more of these things here than we were a year ago. Isn't that great? That there's progress being made, that we're not simply showing up and doing events week after week after week after week, that God is at work, that the Holy Spirit is changing us, that it's more common to see these things than it was a year ago. So here's just a few ideas. If we really take on the sense that we have a shared identity as God's people, then here's the kinds of things that start happening. When we get home from work or school and we're exhausted, and yet we're reminded that a fellow church member has a need, and there is a sense in which we can meet that need, that we don't simply sit alone and, and pray that somebody would do something about it, but we get up and act, and we sacrifice to meet that need. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus sacrificed, therefore we can too. When we come to a teaching in Scripture that a fellow church member interprets differently than us, maybe we're sitting in a connection class or in our gospel community or merely having a meal together and a passage comes up, and their interpretation of what that means is offensive to us, then inside we don't say, what a moron, and we don't belittle them, We don't ignore them. Instead, we say, hey, what if we get back together, look at that together, and see if we can reach some conclusions about what that would mean together? It means that we, as often as possible, refuse to eat alone or even just with immediate family. How much food did you throw away last night after dinner? Now, some of us, ate more than we should have. But why not simply invite another Christian, another brother or sister to the table? Most of us, when we prepare a meal, we have some food left over. And it's, it's a simple thing to do to get on the phone or to text someone and say, come join me. When we know there's an area of ministry around our church gathering that has a need, particularly if we're not serving, what do we do? We jump in to be a part of the team. We believe that when we act sinfully, that we're people who can go to one another and gently talk about it. We believe that when topics come up that we know we need to hear but we don't want to, that we pray and ask God to open our hearts so that we won't resist that word that a brother or sister might have, but that we receive it and join it. When we deposit our paychecks in the bank, we prayerfully determine what we can do without in order to increase our giving so that the work of God can flourish. When we plan our leisure time, we prioritize people over activities. We do things together and talk about God along the way. I could go on and on and on and on. I hope that you think of church not mainly as this, but 
that this is what drives and encourages everything else that happens. Because we not only have a new father and a new family, but we have a new future. God has left the church to serve as a sign of what's to come. See, we are surrounded by people all day, every day, who don't yet know the message of the gospel. And how is it that they'll hear it? Let's be honest. It it won't be mainly by coming and sitting here, although this is an important way it happens. It'll happen far more often, far more frequently, far more importantly, as we take the message and then share it and live it out with our brothers and sisters in Christ. One day, all of God's people will be gathered together to be with Him forever. That's our future. And until then, local churches are signs or proofs or demonstrations that we have that hope. One of the very last verses in the Bible puts it like this. This is Revelation 21, verse 3. John caught a glimpse of what was to come, and he said this, I heard a loud voice from the throne, that's the throne of heaven, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. Does that sound familiar? All the way back in Exodus. He will be their people and God himself will be with them as their God. Won't that be incredible? A place where everything broken is put back together. A place where every sickness is gone a place where you never fear getting a tragic phone call or an awful email, a place where you no longer will have the ability to inflict pain on other people, a place where they won't have that ability for you anymore either, a place most importantly where any separation that would exist between us and God because of sin will be eradicated forever. Won't that be great? Friends, that is the future that we have. It's a sure future. It's not up for question. There is no doubt that that is what's to come. What we don't know is who all will join us there. And so God has not left people to wander spiritually on their own. He's left us as the family of God to be a sign of that future hope by how we live together. So does the quality of our relationships reflect the quality of that future hope that we have? By grace, we're seeing that it is true more and more that we're living that way. By becoming Christians, we are people convinced that Jesus left heaven, became a man, lived a perfect life, died a death that we deserve in order that we could rise in the victory that is His. Therefore, we belong to God And we belong to each other. We have a guaranteed future with our Father forever. How we treat one another and how we love the world is proof positive of that future. In other words, our relationships are designed to demonstrate God's goodness to us in the gospel. I read a story this week about a guy named Doug Nicholas. He was a missionary during the great tuberculosis outbreak in India in the 1960s. He got tuberculosis telling people 
about his new father and his new family. In the 1960s, if you got TB, what happened is you were put in something called a sanitarium. Now that sounds like a lovely place, doesn't it? You were gathered together with everybody else who had TB. So this missionary went into the sanitarium as a person inflicted with what everybody else had there. He carried with him a whole bunch of copies of the Gospel of John. Day after day after day, he tried to share these copies of John, copies of the Gospel with other people, but nobody wanted them. At one point for several nights, he woke up coughing so badly that it was not uncommon to break a rib. And while he awoke, he noticed an old, emaciated man trying to get up out of bed. This man was so weak that he couldn't stand up. And one night he awoke to coughing, saw this guy trying to get out of bed. And in the morning when he woke, the stench was so bad in the ward that everybody was angry at the old man. You see, he was trying to get up to go to the bathroom. But he was so sick, he couldn't get up. The nurse who came to clean up the man smacked him in the face for making such a mess. The next night, the very same thing happened. Doug woke up coughing, coughing, coughing. And he looked over and saw this man trying to get out of bed. Doug, the story says, got up, went over to him, literally picked him up and carried him to the hole in the ground that they called the bathroom. He then went back to bed. At 4 a.m. that morning, one of the other patients who observed all of this tapped Doug on the shoulder, woke him up, gave him a cup of hot tea he'd gotten from somewhere and said, I want to know about this God you keep talking about. Later that same day, another person came. said, can I get one of those copies of John? And then another and another, and another, and another. Why? Not merely because they didn't like the the stench of poo, but because they saw somebody do something that they wouldn't have done. They saw somebody that had a, a different father, that wasn't living for themselves, caring, in a very practical way. Now, chances are you're not going to need to carry somebody to the bathroom today. But who are you going to see that does have a need? Who are you going to see that does have a hurt? Who will we, as one or two people over lunch, notice we could reach out and do something tangible for? And then what opportunities will that open up? to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. Friends, at the end of the day, that's what Church on Mill is about. Not the buildings we come to. Not the gathering we have. Not the classes we put on. Those things are all designed to infuse us, to remind us that we have a new father. And because we have a new father, we've been put into a new family. And that family is constantly reminding us that our future is one that will be only joy. Therefore, we can live as happy people today.
meeting the needs of those around us. God made us who we are to show the world who he is. Some friends who communicated it like this. The church is not something additional or optional. It's at the very heart of God's purposes. Jesus came to create a people who would model what it means to live under his rule. It would be a glorious outpost of the kingdom of God, an embassy of heaven. This is where the world can see what it's like to be truly human. Our identity as human beings is found in community. Our identity as Christians is found in Christ's new community. Our mission takes place through communities of light. Christians, brothers and sisters, would you ask God to help you begin to think of yourself not merely as an individual, but as part of the family of God? And as he does that, you will be faced with thousands and thousands and thousands of little tiny decisions to begin to align life under that new father. Most of those aren't huge, gigantic decisions. They're little things. Would you pray that we together would reorient our decisions, not around what's best for us individually, but what's best for us as a community of faith? Will we serve each other that way? And if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Christ, it's no accident that you're here. It's not mere happenstance that this is what you've heard today. God has made a way for you to know him as your perfect heavenly father. You, like me, deserve only discipline from God. But Jesus offers new life because he took that discipline for you. And if you will turn from sin and turn to him, you too can be given a new father. This is Church on Mill. Let's pray. I invite you to take just a moment or two in, in quiet reflection, asking God to speak to you what he would have you do with what we've heard today.